Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with Chase Cannon, and we work with the NFP Benefits Compliance team. And we use this podcast to bring to you just reminders and some up-to-date information that will impact your employee benefits plans. Today, with July 31st approaching rapidly, we're going to review a trifecta of mid-year compliance obligations, including an oldie, a revival, and a newbie. So Chase, let's, uh, let's start it off. Yeah, well, we're in the dog days of summer, right? Hot, long, and some vacation days. Uh, but we have a few compliance obligations that we've been reminding employers and HR teams about and that we're still receiving quite a few questions on. I'd like to field a lot of questions from our own clients out there. Three compliance obligations to be exact. And I really like things in threes, so breaks down well. But the first is Form 5500. That's the oldie, right? That's been around for a while. Uh, the revival is the PCOR fee filing. Ah, seems, seems to keep coming back from the dead. Right. And uh, the newbie is the COBRA ARPA subsidy tax credit filing, uh, which is something that has come up as a result of pandemic legislation. So which one do you want to talk about first, Suzanne? Let's start with the oldie but goodie. So let's start with Form 5500s. Okay, good idea. Uh, applicable plan sponsors uh, must file Form 5500 returns on the last day of the seventh month after their plan year ends. Um, so if you're counting on your fingers, uh, calendar year plans. So those with a January 1 plan year start date, which is the majority of employers, uh, generally must file by July 31st each year. Um, so for the 2020 plan year uh, that ended December 31st, 2020, they'd be required to file Form 5500 by July 31st, 2021. Importantly, and since we're so close to July 31st at this point, if you're scrambling, if you're a procrastinator, I'm guilty of that, but it's important to remember that plans can request a two and a half month extension. Uh, they do that by filing um, Form 5558, um, and that has to be plan uh, filed by the plan's original due date. So a couple of quick reminders too on those that might be exempt from this requirement uh, because it does apply to most group health plans, most employers, but group health plans sponsored by a governmental or a church entity uh, are not uh, required to file Form 5500 as they're not subject to ERISA. ERISA is the law here that's sort of uh, requiring this. Uh, additionally, and more widely applicable, particularly for our smaller employers on the call, plans with fewer than 100 participants on the first day of the plan year are also exempt from the filing. So going back to, uh, we're talking about 2020, if you look at January 1st, 2020, uh, if you were under 100 at that point, uh, you probably don't have to file. But to qualify for that small plan exception, you have to be unfunded or fully insured. And so usually when we talk about that, or a combination of those two, uh, but usually we're talking about smaller, fully insured plans uh, that get that exemption. You said 100 participants. So that is not 100 employees, correct? Right. We're talking about anybody that's enrolled in the plan when we talk about that. 
So what are what are some questions that um, we get now? I know we've had 450 500s are obviously not a new thing. As you mentioned, it's an oldie but goodie. So we still continue to get questions on these. So what are the kinds of questions that we see come in the box? Yeah, we still get a lot of questions on Form 5500. We get a lot of questions about ERISA, which is interesting because it's such an old law, uh, but still different situations come up and different fact patterns. But one common question we get relates to how many Forms 5500 does a company have to file if, you, if they have different benefit options, such as multiple medical plans or dental and vision plans, disability plans. All these plans are subject to ERISA and, and the Form 5500 requirement. So do you have to file separately for all of those? And the answer there really comes back to the plan documents themselves. You can bundle those plan options into one plan via what is referred to often as a wrap plan doc or a wrapper uh, with a W at the front. Uh, we're not talking about Jay-Z or any other wrappers. This is a W wrapper. Uh, that basically means that the employer is sponsoring one plan with multiple benefits. And because it's one plan, then you only have to file one form 5,500. And then of course, in that form 5,500, you're describing all of those different benefit options. So the best place to check is with the related plan docs or SPDs. Those should really describe whether the plan design is meant to be one plan or multiple plan plans. And remember that there are other implications when you bundle a plan together like this that could potentially move a smaller plan into a larger plan, which means the small plan exception that we just talked about maybe wouldn't apply. So one quick example, if I have 75 employees on the medical plan, but there are 35 additional or distinct individuals that are uh, on the medical plan, but also on the group term life plan, and I bundle those two plans together via one of these wrap docs, it's possible that I've now taken the plan over 100, right? I'm not great at math, but 75 plus 35 is 110. And so now I have, a, have to file a form 5500, whereas previously I, I may not have had to. Um, so, so that's something to look at and consider when you are looking at these plan documents. But overall, um, it's usually easier to bundle the plans and then use that single plan doc as the overall vehicle for compliance and then file one form 5500 rather than multiple 5500s. Right. And that's a great reminder that the written plan documents under ERISA are required for any plan size. So whether you have 100 or 50 uh, participants, you still need those written plan docs. Right. Um, uh, let's move on now to the revival requirement. What's going on with the PCOR fee? The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah, well, this was a requirement that was supposed to sunset. It, it should have ended last year, and it's back again, thanks to Congress renewing the PCOR fee for another 10 years. And we've talked about this on past podcasts a little bit, but like past July's, employers that sponsor self-insured plans, and that includes an, a health reimbursement arrangement or an HRA, they have to file and pay the PCOR fee uh, employers that have fully insured plans do not have to do that. So if you're listening and you're fully insured, you're kind of off the hook with the PCOR fee. The carrier has to pay and file that fee. Likely would pass it along through increased premiums to the employer, but they don't. the employer does not have to do anything. Uh, but as a quick background here, the ACA imposed the PCOR fee on health plans to help support clinical effectiveness research. 
and they established this uh, PCOR, which is patient-centered and outcome research fee. Um, so it's meant to help support that research uh, for better outcomes. Uh, originally, the PCOR fee applied uh, beginning on October 1st uh, for plan years ending on or after October 1st of 2012. And now it's extended to plans that end before October 1st, 2029. Um, so that's the 10-year extension that was originally supposed to expire in 2019. Uh, the PCOR fee is generally due by July 31st of the calendar year following the close of the plan year. So it's a little bit, little bit tricky and it has this weird October 1st date that relates to how the amount of the fee. Um, but basically it becomes kind of an annual thing that has to be paid and then the amount differs based on the plan year end date. Uh, but PCOR fees are reported annually on form 720, which is a quarterly federal excise tax return. Uh, and it relates to the second quarter of the calendar year. Uh, so that's why you get the July 1st due date, which is sort of the end of the month after the second quarter. So you have that 30 or 31 days after the quarter's end to file. Uh, but plan sponsors that are subject to PCOR fees, but no other types of excise taxes. So that's a lot of em most employers probably they should file Form 720 only for the second quarter. No filings are needed for the other quarters. So that's a question we get. Like, do we have to now file this every single quarter? Uh, no, you just have to file it for that one quarter unless there's something else on 720 that you have to report every quarter. As far as the PCOR fee amount, it's based on the number of employees, spouses, and dependents that are covered by the plan. Some, some people refer to this as the belly button rule. Uh, right. Talk about belly buttons, but uh, just the idea that you're counting each participant in the plan, not just employees. Uh, the only exception to that is for the HRA, uh, which we'll talk about in just a minute. For plan years ending between October 1st, 2019 and October 1st, 2020, the fee increased to $2.54 per covered life. Um, so that's the amount. Form 720 and the instructions kind of outline that. So if there's questions, you can refer to those forms. And the, as far as how to file and pay it, the PCOR can be paid electronically or mailed to the IRS uh, using payment vouchers. And one last quick fact, according to the IRS, the fee is tax deductible as a business expense. So that's not always the case, but if you're on the tax side, this one does count as a business expense, which is helpful. Very helpful. Yeah. And again, this is something that's been around for a little bit. What type of questions do we get um, today? Yeah, so nothing too crazy, mostly just questions about Form 720 and how to perform the head counts. Um, usually employers can use the, they use the participant counts on Form 5500, so going back to what we were just talking about, or they use a snapshot method or participant count from each quarter. So you count up you know, four dates across the year and then use an average of those counts. So the calculation itself can be a bit of a hassle since it um, you know, includes all covered individuals. Some employers get caught up in that employees versus all covered individuals. Uh, the only exception there is the HRA I mentioned where the employer can just use the employee only enrollment numbers. That makes it a little bit easier if, you, if an employer has a fully insured plan, you don't have to pay on the fully insured plan, but they sponsor an HRA that sort of is integrated with that because the HRA is self-insured, they do have to report and pay on the HRA but they can just 
count the number of employees. So that's usually pretty quick. Uh, the only question we've seen really crop up this year has to do with short plan years. And I'm not sure why that's coming up more. Huh. Uh, but the idea is that the PCOR fee still applies for a short plan year. Uh, the employer has to file and pay the PCOR fee based on the end of the short plan year. So again, you have this weird October 1st date. If the plan year ends before October 1st, it's one amount. And if it's after October 1st uh, and you know before the end of the year, it's a different amount. But you still have to count up and figure out your average participant count for the year. Also, we hear... Uh, heard, we've heard a little bit about PCOR failures or corrections from time to time. If the employer needs to amend their PCOR filing, in other words, they sent in the 720, but they maybe had a mix up in participant counts or something like that. They fix that filing uh, by submitting form 720-X, mm. uh, which is an amended form 720. So that's fairly simple process. Just go through the same process you did to file the Form 720, but now it's a 720X with the corrected information. For total failures in the past, uh, the best advice is to file as soon as possible. It's always better to comply before the IRS finds out you haven't. And the IRS actually has several helpful web pages to help with this process, even though they don't directly describe you know, the issue itself of a total failure. But the helpful web pages include one for general PCOR information. There's an FAQ page that just has a list of FAQs. And then the most helpful for this situation is one that has the past year's PCOR amounts. Because remember, this is adjusted annually and past year's Form 720 because you want to file the right year's 720. So employers can use those to go back and file the appropriate 720s for past year's to sort of fix that failure if it's uh, in the past. Right. And, and um, certainly it's nice to see that when the IRS is trying to put out information, that's very helpful. And they do certainly do do that at times. Um, so let's move on now to the yeah. newbie. And let's, uh, let's look at the new requirement that's, that will be applied to all employers. Yeah, let's, let's move. This is a pandemic related piece of legislation and something we've been talking a lot about over the last few months. Uh, and that's the ARPA of 2021. That's the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. We refer to it as ARPA because um, we have to have acronyms and we have to have weird noises right. coming out of our mouths. ARPA <laughs> provides COBRA subsidies, right? 100% paid premiums for COBRA from April 1st of this year through September 30th of this year for those who experience the COBRA events of reduction in hours or an involuntary termination and who are still in their COBRA maximum coverage period. So essentially free COBRA for six months if you fall into that uh, situation. But we've already worked through a lot of the issues around this, right? We had five, right. others, several white papers, FAQ docs outlining common questions and scenarios relating to the subsidy itself. But as it relates to this idea that we have this end of July as a compliance deadline, uh, ARPA allows employers and insurers to claim a tax credit for the COBRA premium subsidies they pay on behalf of what is another new acronym, AEIs. Those are assistant eligible, assistance eligible individuals. Those are the uh, ones I just described who had a reduction in hours or an involuntary termination, and they're still in their COBRA maximum coverage period. Um, so the credit is really uh, the employer's 
uh, ability to get their payment out back from the government. And um, it's done through a credit, a tax credit credited against the Medicare hospital insurance tax. And it's fully refundable, which means the employer or insurer claiming the credit can receive a payment from the IRS if the amount of the credit exceeds their Medicare hospital insurance tax obligations, including where they may not owe anything for Medicare hospital insurance tax. So in right. other words, if, it, yeah, if they pay out $1,000 uh, in COBRA subsidies and they only owed 600 for Medicare tax, um, they would not have to pay that 600 and they would get 400 back, the difference between 600 and 1,000 of what they paid. I know there's a lot of questions on whether the employer would have to front the money or the carrier would do so. Um, and who would be the one that would be actually reimbursed? Yeah, so this has been a point of confusion, but um, employ it's going to be employers in most situations. Um, it's employers if they maintain self-insured plan. Uh, it's employers if they maintain a fully insured plan that's subject to COBRA, federal COBRA. So that's generally 20 or more employees. And then it turns to the carrier to claim the credit if they cover, if, if it's the plan that is subject only to state uh, continuation. So in most situations, it's going to be the employer. And that was a confusing point up front. For multi-employer plans, sometimes we work with uh, these, these types of plans, the plan itself can claim the tax credits. So that's, that's a little bit different there. Um, so employers, we did get some good FAQs on the tax credit about a month and a half ago. We have other resources that go a little bit more in depth on that. But basically, the employer can claim the credit for periods covered by the premium subsidy, and they are entitled to the credits as of the date the individual or AEI elects COBRA coverage. So for instance, if the AEI elects COBRA coverage on July 1st, and, and that coverage is retroactive to April 1st, uh, the first day, that's the first day that ARPA premium subsidy was in place, the employer can claim the credit for that period beginning on April 1st through July 1st. Um, and then if the individual continues COBRA coverage through July, of course, the employer can get the credit for that period too. But just that idea, it can be uh, retroactive. How do they do this? It's on another fun tax return. This one is form 941. So we're going through all of the tax form numbers, uh, but that's a quarterly employment tax return. Uh, they uh, may reduce deposits. In other words, not pay the amount of federal employment tax, that Medicare tax up to the amount of the anticipated tax credit and then report the tax credit claimed. The number of individuals receiving the tax credit for that quarter, that all goes on form 941. And again, this is getting back to when is it due? Quarterly tax returns uh, for Q2 would cover April, May, and June. And that means they're due by the end of the next month. That is the July 31st date we're talking about. So one other form that is out there that is helpful is form 7200. This one can only be filed via fax. Yeah, you don't hear about fax machines very often anymore. So that's interesting that that's a unique number that applies to fax machines, so. Yeah, so, so the form 7200 allows employers to obtain an advance on the tax credit. And so that, that's maybe helpful in some situations where Maybe there's cash flow or the employer just wants to make sure they're getting what they uh, think they're going to get ahead of time. 
But if they file this Form 7200 for an advance on the tax credit, they still have to claim the credit on Form 941. And that's a question that's come up um, just because you filed and, and claimed on 7200 for an advance, you still have to sort of reconcile it on your quarterly return, which is the Form 941. Chase, I just have to mention all of this is right up your alley, having because you've worked at the IRS prior to coming to NFP. So this is uh, <laughs> that's why these numbers are just kind of flowing off your tongue. So, um, uh, wh what other kind of questions do we get uh, related to this type of filing? What are the questions typically coming in? And I know we we have to keep it short, but what are some of the main ones? Yeah, we haven't seen too many questions yet. Again, this is a kind of a first time process for some employers. Uh, employers are still working through it, uh, but one scenario that, that's come up it relates to the timing of the tax credit where the employee takes some time to elect COBRA. As we know, we have this sort of 60-day window after the employee or former employee receives the ARPA COBRA notice, right, which is similar to a COBRA election notice. What happens when the window uh, lays out over the quarterly time frame for the credit? And just a quick example, Co COBRA event occurs on June 15th, let's say, the employee is sent a notice but doesn't elect until August 13th. That's still within their rights to take that time to elect. Uh, but the coverage and the subsidy we know will be retroactive to June 15th. So which quarter do you claim the credit? Q2, which is you know June 15th, or Q3? Do you just claim it all in Q3? Um, you've already filed Form 941 by July 31st though. So uh, or hopefully you have if you filed on time. So you wouldn't maybe have known about that. The IRS says you can actually just claim it all in Q3 and, and that'd be okay since the filing has already occurred. Uh, the IRS is basically saying it would be kind of silly to require an amended Q2 filing knowing that the employer is already going to be filing again for Q3. So that was actually a helpful clarification and that, that question and scenario has come up. We've seen it, but that's helpful to know that you know, the, the IRS is thinking about those situations and that it makes it a little easier to just go ahead and claim all the way back, even though a part of that credit relates to Q2, you can just put it on your Q3 uh, quarterly return and, and uh, claim the credit that way. Right, it's, it is nice to see when the IRS is reasonable in their approach and, and really takes into account uh, the impact on the, the people who are filing. So um, Chase, right. we are greatly appreciate you bringing very timely information to us that's uh, related to just the end of this month and very helpful reminders. Um, and like we, as we like to say uh, on this podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us.